a copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Tom Brokaw, I think uh, one of the talking heads on the news, you know, wrote a book back in 1998 entitled The Greatest Generation. He was writing about a generation that spanned from 1901 to 1927. And the reason that he thought they were the greatest generation is because they lived through these momentous changes. I mean, this, this generation grew up in a time when the, the world was experiencing great shifts in power. Europe was in upheaval and the United States had yet to flex its military muscle. But that all changed during World War II and a new era of American power and wealth ensued. I mean, this generation lived through the Great Depression, think of it. World War II and then on to one of the most prosperous eras in the history of our nation. The newfound prosperity contrasted sharply with the previous decades of, of austerity, scraping and scrapping to get what you need. They had an exceptional work ethic. Perhaps uh, because of having lived through the Great Depression, this generation knew a, a few things about working hard. On top of that, they lived through the years of World War II, and, and they appreciate stability, my goodness. Combining these two factors resulted in one of the most, the strongest uh, worth, work ethic among the members of the greatest generation. I mean, they lived to live, they learned to live frugality. I mean, going through the Great Depression, there wasn't a whole lot there, my friends. I wasn't there, I've read about it, I've seen the movies. <laughs> and yet they came through. They figured it out, each one of them as a family, as a community, and they made their way through. They exhibited self-sacrifice and honor. I mean, during World War II, obviously in the military. You know, many gave themselves during the World War II and the, to the extent that they lost their life or their limbs. I mean, the war was, was all-encompassing for this generation. The Battle of the Bulge, for example, is considered by military experts to be the greatest in the nation's history. The greatest generation. They went through great difficulties and came out the other side, my friends. When I think about this and the long list of things endured, things overcome, I think of my friends, people like Abraham and Sarah, here we are in Genesis chapter 22, towards the end. Some of you might say, hey, we looked at this last week. Well, we did. We're going to pick up at the end of this chapter. Because when we get to chapter 23 to 25, we find ourselves in the midst of transition. And by way of review, 
very important that we understand what's going on here. This is oft, oft, oft missed by the church through the generations. We have seen the Bible as a bunch of little uh, undisconnected stories about how to be good or how to overcome or don't ever do that. Or, But my friends, there is a storyline through Scripture. The book of Genesis started with God's creation. And you remember that God evaluated his creation and in every area this was good, not on the scale of good, best, good, good, better, and best, my friends. This was everything was just as it should be. It was a perfect world. And there he made the man and the woman and put them in the garden. What a tragic story, my friends. We have this picture of the Lord visiting, walking among them, fellowshipping with them in the cool of the garden. And we have this intimacy with the God who made them, the very design of God. We know his intent is to have an intimate relationship with his creation. He gave them one command. You don't eat the fruit in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is here in the midst of the garden. Because to take that fruit is to take God's invitation for intimacy, a fellowship with him, nothing in between, no fear, no shame. And when a little bit of temptation came, my friends, we know that temptation, we know the tempter came, but temptation comes from within. Somebody can flash cash or fruit or steak, you know? I mean, you could watch commercials and things. You could care less what's on them. But occasionally, hey... You see this year's Subaru? <laughs> Comes from within. They took the fruit. They ate. And they lost it all. The day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the day that you die. And they didn't fall over backwards. It wasn't like you're going to choke on that. What he meant was, what the Lord was saying, is you turn your back on everything that I have offered you. You walk away from a relationship with me. And then they died. They did. But God made a promise, and this is key in understanding all which happens throughout all of Scripture. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Yeah. The seed, singular. And so this is about tracing a family line throughout the Old Testament is tracing a family. That's why genealogies are all over the place in the Bible. 
What tracing of family line? To who? To the seed. And who is the seed? It's Jesus. That's why the New Testament starts with genealogies. That we trace Jesus all the way back. Creation, fall. And then as man multiplies, the flood. Every intent of the heart of man was only evil continually. And so God brought about a flood, brought it down to one family, and the line continues. When we get to chapter 12, we get another very important, just crucial bit of information that we need to understand. It's something called the Abrahamic covenant. God chose this man, Abraham, and he made a covenant with him. It was an unconditional covenant. God told him what he was going to do. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you, your name great. And I'm going to make out of you a great nation. And I'm going to bless that nation. And anyone that blesses that nation, I will bless. Anyone that curses that nation, I will curse. But through this nation, all the families of the world will be blessed. It's talking about Jesus. And so we have this covenant. Now, if you're going to make a nation, I mean, let's just uh, stretch our imagination for a moment here. If you are going to make a nation, what do you need? What are the building blocks? Three of them. You need three things essential if you're going to make a nation. Number one, you got to have people, right? I mean, come on, you know. Abraham and his wife don't make a nation. You got to have people. Yeah, guess what? That's the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. Particularly between Genesis and Exodus, 75 people, the descendants of Abraham, 75 people turn into two and a half million over a period of 430 years. You got people. All right, now what? We good? We got a bunch of people? They just wandering around now? Need a place to put them. You need a land, right? As a matter of fact, in Genesis 15, <laughs> the Lord laid out exactly what land he was going to give them. You need people, you need a place to put them, and you need a law to govern them. Hey, that's the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. <laughs> Laying out the law that shall govern these people. Absolutely. People Land, law. And it all started with Abraham and the Lord. Well, we followed his story here. And when we get to chapter 22, we saw this, this momentous event in which God had promised him a son, Isaac. And here is Isaac, probably a teenager at this point. I don't know. He's, he's not a little baby and the Lord says, you take your son, your only son, and I want you to go to this place, 
And I want you there to offer him as a sacrifice to me. And you remember what happened. He got up early in the morning. Here's Abraham who has learned to obey God. That even though he doesn't understand how God can fulfill a promise through this guy and have me sacrifice him at the same time, he obeys in faith. You remember just as Abraham picked up the knife, Lord said, Abraham, Abraham, (laughs) here I am. Now I know. And at the end of this chapter, it feels like this little paragraph that's so easy to skip over. But my friends, it is the beginning of a transition. Notice, if you will, chapter 22 and verse 20. This is a time of transition. Just like I believe the greatest generation left the world in better shape than what they found it. Abraham and Sarah, I believe, do the same. They have gone through some difficult events. They have made some monumental mistakes. But my friends, here they are moving it to the next generation. Notice here, verse 20, if you will, the Lord here is providing a wife for Isaac. You have this unfortunate chapter break happening here. Now, something you may or may not know is that the chapter and verses, those divisions, were not part of the original writing. When Moses wrote this stuff out, he said, hey, this is a good time to go to chapter three, you know? This was done way further down the line. And it was done for our convenience. Otherwise, I'm like, I think it's like the third paragraph. If you go down about 40 lines, join. Just easier to say chapter 22 and verse 20. (laughs) So it's a convenience tool. But the problem is, since they're not inspired by God, those breaks aren't always in the best position. I, if I had the option, I would have made the chapter break right here before verse 20 because there's a transition. How do we know that? Look at, the, look at the first word, now. And that is a clear break from what has happened before. And so uh, we see now after these things, we're moving on to the next thing now here. It was told to Abraham. And we get this little spot of news here that seems irrelevant. Behold, Abraham gets this, this, uh, the, these things told to him. Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Oh, good news. He got something in the postal, you know. Hey, look at this. Brother had a kid, you know. <laughs> so, and, the, and that's, that seems irrelevant, you know. I mean, look at the names of these people here in verse 21. Uz, his firstborn. And if you got a firstborn named Uz, what do you name the second guy? My Buzz, of course. <laughs> the Uz brothers, yeah. Uz and Buzz, his brother. Kemuel, the father of Aram. Chesed and Hatzo and Pilda and Jidlaf and Bethuel. And almost as a by the way, <laughs> the birth of the woman who would be Isaac's wife. A key element in the building of this nation. Notice verse 23. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. 
These eight Milka bore to Nahor and Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teva and Gaham and Tahash and Makah. But the key element right there is Rebecca. God has already put the peace in place. You know, you're married, you, you know, there was a time you had no idea anything about your wife. Likely you didn't meet her in elementary school, you know, out on the playground in kindergarten, you know. But separate, distinct, perhaps separated by hundreds of miles, God raising up. And that's what's going on here. And this is how God works anyway. How is God going to provide for you in the year 2024? Well, you're not thinking about it. I guarantee you God is taking care of it. Putting people in their places. The right time in the right way. And so the Lord, here's this time of transition. We have read the story of Abraham and Sarah. But it's time to move to the next generation. How do we know that? Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. Sarah dies. And that's sad, isn't it? We've, for weeks, we've been studying their lives. And they, again, they've made some bad decisions and some really great decisions. You know, God told them to leave their home and their family and everything. And you just go where I tell you. You don't worry about nothing else. And they did. And what do we find out about Sarah? Well, we find out her age at her death. Sarah lived 127 years. And these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died with the location of her death at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Well, friends, that's the promised land. That's the land that God is giving to Abraham and his descendants. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. You know, there are people who think events like this should be faced with this stoicism of, you know, just buckle up and move on. Abraham wept for his wife. I'll tell you what. It's part of God's design. Nobody ever thinks, you know what I should do in this situation? I should cry. Let's manufacture some tears here. It's an emotional response. Part of the body's response. To such a difficult, difficult time. Horrific event. I mean, this guy has spent... Oh, like 67 years with this woman from the, the time of, wow, from chapter 12. And she's gone. You know, in uh, John chapter 11, there was a fellow who died. And they put him in his tomb. And people started talking about this fellow named Lazarus. And people looked on and say, you know, 
Jesus healed other people. Why would he take care of that guy? And think of all of the conversations that take place about varied events. I mean, that's why Facebook does so well. Let's talk about it. You know? Yeah. But you know what Jesus did? He wept. And why? Why did he not have faith? Did he not? No, you know what? He had compassion. Because he loved this guy. And you could talk about the theology of sin and death and he knew it was inevitable and he should have prepared and Jesus wept. You need to say anything more than that? And so here, here is Abraham who goes to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. But you know what is missing from this announcement? The impact of her life. The impact of her life. For example, Sarah's godly example to women. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, Peter, writing about Sarah, says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word... They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And so here in First Peter, we see Sarah's godly example to women even today. But in Hebrews chapter 11, I mean, that's a big chapter, my friends, not by volume, but by content. Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. I didn't say hall of fame. I'm talking about people that exhibited great faith in God. And you know who's there? Sarah. In Hebrews 11 verse 10 we read, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable, innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Wow. Transition, my friends. Abraham and Sarah left some pretty gigantic footprints to be followed by their son. And all of this, in all of his sadness and the sorrow, 
led, Ab led Abraham to a very difficult position. What shall I do with my wife? Got to find a place to bury her. And the thing we know about Abraham at this point is he is a sojourner. It simply means he doesn't have a home where he is living. He's just living off from afar. Visitor, long term as it were. And so Abraham took some steps. Significant steps. Notice if you will verse 3. So Abraham rose up from his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of sight. Interestingly enough, my friends, he's not just buying a plot for his wife, but for himself. He too will be buried in this spot that he finds, as well as his children. And you will notice how they responded to him. Verse 5, the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So his neighbor says, well, we've got tombs. Well, you can use those. But for Abraham, that wouldn't do. It was enough for our Lord. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. But Abraham, mm -mm. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me from Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field, and for the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a property for my burying place. So Abraham has selected a piece of property a cave, the cave of Machpelah, which he owns at the end of the field. Well, now he's identified the property, and we see his inquiry here. Now we move on to negotiations. Negotiations, my friends. Look at here in verse 10. And the negotiations begin with Ephron, the owner of the property, Naming a price, and he does so in such a creative way, I think you'll enjoy it. Now, the irony of this, of course, is that the Lord is giving him this land. This land belongs to Abraham. He just hasn't taken it yet. But here he is negotiating a price for it. Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in the gate of the city. <coughs> Sorry about that. Yes, and there was that gate of the city. This was like the city hall. This is where contracts were made, agreements were made. This was a business area here. And so, my friends, we see... 
No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. Look at this. This is how it starts. Ephron says first and foremost, no, I'll just give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. That sure sounds very kind, doesn't it? Well, notice verse 12. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? I mean, what's that between me and you, you know, or you and me? Bury your dead. And the price is named. They do it a little different than we do, do <laughs> Just give me the price and I'll tell you whether I want to pay it or not. But this is following the very, very laws of the time that we have seen in, in studies, you know, that have been recorded of the time. It follows the same pattern. And so the price has been named. And you will notice that Abraham acquires the first bit of the promised land. God made a promise, has laid out the borders, and they are vast, my friends. But this little spot of land is all that Abraham will ever own. His descendants, you ever hear of the book of Joshua? Yeah, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Yeah, they went in and they took the land eventually. But Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was on the east of Mamre, the field of the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. And Abraham, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave, the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place for the Hittites. And you read this and you say, so what? I mean, yeah, we get it. You know, his wife died and he bought a place to bury her. But this is monumental, my friends. As long as you see this from the big picture. God has made a promise that he would give this land to the descendants of Abraham. And while Abraham only saw a field of it, my friends, it was certainly evidence of the truthfulness of God's word. And so here is Abraham and Sarah. By the time we get to chapter 25, we're going to see that Abraham himself dies. And it's time for the next generation. And what kind of footprints have they left? Some great examples. Believe me, Isaac will never forget about the sacrifice going up to Moriah. Hmm.
But I'll tell you what, it certainly challenges us. Where in your life has God placed you that you have left it in better shape than when you got there? I started out talking about a great generation. How about we start talking about faithful followers of Jesus? Wrap it up here, friends. Wherever God places you, leave it better than when the way you found it. You've heard, I hope, <laughs> you never return a borrowed car without, uh, with an empty tank, my friends. You fill it. There are these rules that men tell one another. You know, I see it being nodded to over there. Yeah, I told you that. <laughs> and it's true. You know, that it demonstrates character. Well, yeah, but I don't need the car anymore. What do I need gas in it? Well, you needed the car, didn't you? It's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Leave it in better shape than where you found it. And I would commend you, my friends, that if we're going to leave the kind of footprints for a generation to come, we better be better examples. People ought to be able to look at our lives and say, that's how you live out this Christian life by faith. And if that's going to happen, my friends, you need to evaluate the way you're living now and say, hey, am I really living the Christian life or am I just yakking about it? I mean, who am I when nobody's around? When do you think nobody can see? It's a big revelation. I guarantee you this, my friend, there's always somebody watching. We started the service singing a song from Sunday school, but just studying this, thinking about this, I was reminded of another song we sang in Sunday school. Do you know, O Christian, you're a sermon in shoes? Do you know, O oh Christian, you're a sermon in shoes. People are learning about God by watching you. What are you teaching them? Walk it and talk it. Live it and give it. Teach it and preach it. Know it and show it. You're a sermon in shoes. So be a better example, my friend. Exercise your faith. Faith like muscle grows with use. Where have you exhibited faith in Christ in the past 24 hours? I mean, how far back do you have to go where you operated by faith. You know what God's word said? You didn't know what the results would be, but you did it anyway because God had said to do it. You trusted him and you obeyed. And finally, it's about time to start investing in that which will outlive you. When's the last time you gave thought to that? Investing in something that will outlive you. We are inherently selfish, my friends. 
We think about ourselves all the time. But how about think toward the future? Family Bible Church. You know, there's not many of us here that are under 20. <laughs> or 30, or 40, 50. <laughs> and like Abraham and Sarah, we aren't going to be here forever. What kind of impact are you making that's going to last for another generation? Let's think about that today and take action.